Uh, you can turn to Colossians 3, verses 18, uh, th- sorry, yeah, Colossians 3, 18 through 4, 6. So we're going to span uh, just about a chapter and then go into chapter 4 a little bit. And also you can follow along on our mobile app if you just search HMCC. There's going to be sermon notes available online, and you can actually do a little fill-in-the-blank so you can keep on track with what we're going through in the passages. I wanted to just recap briefly for those of you who uh, may have been here uh, just a couple times or this is your first time. Uh, we've been studying the book of Colossians and covering this idea of ultimate, how Christ is our ultimate in everything, whether it's uh, our, our social lives, our family lives, our spiritual lives, our working lives. Christ is literally the ultimate of everything. And in the first few chapters, we remember how Paul was writing to the church in Colossae. And the church in Colossae heard the good news from this brother called Epaphras. And pretty much the whole time, just Paul is boasting about Christ. He's saying Christ is preeminent over all. He is God in body, in flesh. And Paul is suffering for his faith. And then he tells the Colossians how, because of Christ, how he died and he rose again. Now, just similar as with Christ, so the believers also have died and rose again. And that's why we're able to live this new life. And last week, we just talked about how living with God's holiness starts with knowing God's goodness. And so we're picking up here in light of all the things that Paul has just talked about. It's, it's a lot. And I just try to summarize it in the last minute or so. But Paul has been talking about how Christ has been and will be and will continue to be everything that we need. And so now we're going to go into talking about some practical issues in relationships, practical issues, and actually looking outside of ourselves. So I wanted to start this morning with a question for us. And the question for us this morning is that when it comes to building unity or relationships, What are the activities or actions that we usually feel like will help us to build that unity or those relationships? Whether it's with friends, with your family, with your life group, with your colleagues, with your classmates. What are those typical things that we feel like, oh, if I do X, Y, and Z, then I'm going to get closer. That these relationships are going to become better. Oftentimes, it's usually the same combination of spending more time, Sharing, talking, getting to know one another deeper, serving one another, looking out for one another, giving gifts. As some of us, we love the, the love language. It's like, what's your love language? Is it gifts? Is it serving? Oh, yours is touch, isn't it? You're weird, right? <laughs> Just kidding. But there are oftentimes the problems we find that no matter how much you do these things, relationships still don't turn out the way that we expect it to. No matter how much time effort, money. Still, relationships are the very things that cause us sometimes the most pain, the most anxiety, the most anguish in our lives. There are real consequences to not being together. And when I was thinking about this concept of relationships and what what it takes to really be unified or what, what it takes to have good relationships, I realized it's really similar to actually an orchestra or a band. Anyone here play an orchestra before? Couple? Handful? Okay. How many of you cannot stand a band or an orchestra that is out of tune? Okay, here we go. Some of us. 
Some of us like when you hear a group of instruments or a couple of people that are playing together and you're totally out of tune, it just becomes it is like worse than you know it's like the, the ceramic bowls or plates and you have a fork or something that scratches against it's that kind of sound, right? It's just you just cannot stand. You have to plug your ears and run out of the room. And oftentimes that 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 dissonance is so painful that we cannot stand it. And it's the very thing that causes us to wonder, like, what's going on? And it's the same with relationships. Oftentimes, if there are relationships that are not in tune, it causes a lot of pain. And so I wanted to share with us this analogy. If you, if you have perfect pitch, wanna, um, you might want to cover your ears for this video <laughs> of a band that plays different national anthems. When world leaders visit... Typically, when the world leaders come and stand together, the, the national anthem is played for, that, for both countries of those world leaders. I'm not going to tell you which country it is. You can look it up later. I don't want to shame this country, especially if some people are, are from this country. But this is what happens when your band or your, this group of people is totally out of tune. I just want you to experience how painful it is. And then we can talk about how that's related to relationships. So let's go ahead and watch this video together. All right. Oh my gosh, right? Wow. That is amazing. I think some of you who caught on, the first part was that country's band, and the other part was the actual song and how it was supposed to be played. And my favorite part was just watching the world leaders stand like, OMG, right? And you could tell, like, some of them were, like, trying not to crack up and trying not to say something. And if you look into the comments of the YouTube video, you're like, oh, I can't believe this is how World War III might have gotten started, right? By, by these horrible renditions of these national anthems. And, and there's just something about it where you just, you just cringe because it's, it's taking something that is supposed to be the top of your country. These are world-class, supposedly world-class musicians, world-class orchestras, that are out of tune playing probably the most important song in the world for their country, in front of the world leaders right at that moment. And, it, and just everything in us says, what's going on with those relationships? What is it that causes those instruments, those team members of that band to be so out of tune, to be so out of whack? And how much more for our relationships in and outside the church? That oftentimes, like, our relationships, the way that we relate to one another, whether it's our friendships or our family members, that they're so out of tune that it causes so much pain. It causes so much difficulty. It causes so much conflict. Oftentimes in the most important times of our lives, in the most important segments or areas of our lives, that it it might not cause World War III, but it causes us such difficulty and such pain. And the, the amazing thing about orchestras, the amazing thing about bands, is that when you think about it, for those of you who are music students or you grew up playing instruments, you know that if you as an instrument, you try to tune to the other person, and that other person tries to tune to another person, and you're just trying to tune to each other, it just doesn't work like that. And in fact, the only way that you can really tune an orchestra or a group of people is you tune to one sound. You tune to one note. And it's just like that with our relationship with Christ. It's not by building relationships and spending more time together that we're actually going to become closer 
that we're going to be better in our relationships. It's by turning to Christ. It's by seeking Christ more than anything else, above all things, that's going to reinforce and solidify our relationships with one another. A.W. Tozer says this really well. He kind of came up with this analogy in his book, The Pursuit of God. He says, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Saying 100 pianos, the way that you tune them is not just by tuning each individual one to each other. But as you take one tuning fork, you tune every single piano to that tuning fork. And that's how you get real unity. And in the same way, if every single one of us in our church, in our relationships, in our life groups, if we were all tuned to Christ, how powerful that would be in our relationships to have real healthy relationships in every aspect of our lives. And that's why the one thing I want to give us for this morning is that our relationships will be healthy when we seek Christ wholeheartedly. Our relationships will be healthy when we seek Christ wholeheartedly. As we go into this one thing and we talk about how we want to see healthy relationships, I want to share with us two points that Paul talks about in this passage and how we can actually see these healthy relationships as we seek Christ wholeheartedly. The first point is that Christ redefines the purpose of relationships. Christ redefines the purpose of relationships. Let's read, hopefully you've turned to it now, Colossians chapter 3, verse 18 through 4, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, then just turn to someone and read on with someone next to you. And you can follow along along the app as well. And let's read it together, or I'll read it for us. It says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Well, these are the relationships that Paul is now describing. So in these few verses, Paul is now talking about various groups of people with different relationships, and he's redefining the purpose of these relationships. So how does he redefine the purpose of the relationships? These, he brings up two things in the relationships in the Colossian church that's happening right there in that moment. The first thing he talks about is that there's a problem. He addresses that there's a problem in the Colossian church in a relational sense. The context here is is Paul is, is reminding the Colossians that Christ is ultimate, so this is a practical application. And we notice that Paul specifically, he corrects husbands, wives, children, fathers, and bondservants. He's correcting them. He's giving them instructions in the first few verses. 
He says, wives, submit to your husbands. He says, husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. And so there was an implicit problem in the Colossian household. For Paul to be able to say those things, they're implicitly or implied there was an issue that was going on that these people weren't doing these things. And what were those problems? Wives, submit to your husband. Well, apparently it seems like wives weren't submitting to their husbands. Some of us are like, why should I submit to my husband? You know? Some of us are like, aren't gender roles old and outdated? We should have equality now. Well, right after that, it says, husband, love your wives. Don't be harsh with them. And we know in the Bible that it also says that husbands are to love their wives as what? Christ loved the church. So while wives are expected to submit to their husbands, husbands are expected to die for their wives, okay? So if anyone tells you, you better submit to me, then you, you just turn back to them and say, you're supposed to die for me, okay? So... <laughs> I'm preaching to myself. I'm, I'm gotta gotta prepare. All right, so I'm learning to die. All right, so there's a problem. There was an issue between husbands and wives. Wives were not submitting to their husbands respectfully as to the Lord, and husbands were not loving their wives in a way that was like Christ, like dying for them, like being harsh with them. It wasn't just husband or wives. There were children involved. It says fathers. Or sorry, first it says, children, obey your parents and everything. So clearly, children weren't obeying their parents. I mean, this is nothing new for us, right? Don't raise your hand how many of you are disobeying your parents right now. And then it says, fathers, don't provoke your children. Don't provoke them. So in this situation, in the Colossian church, oftentimes, some, some background, even at that time, that fathers were the head of the household, and oftentimes they used their authority, almost abusively, to correct, to, to say whatever they wanted to their children. And this would oftentimes hurt the children. So Paul says, do not provoke. And this is a picture of the ancient family in Colossae. This is a picture of the problems that families experience. But when we think about this picture of families, we realize it's actually not so different than the families that we have today. It's actually not so different than the issues that we experience Every single day in our lives. When we think about our family, just think about your own family for a moment. Do your parents have problems? For those of you who are married, are there issues in your marriage? For those of us who have siblings, are there conflicts that we have? Our, 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 our relationship with our parents, is everything so great? Or are there underlying tension that we just cannot shake off? And this is what boggles my mind. This was written almost 2,000 years ago. Over 2,000 years with the span of all the technology that we've had. All the soci... Okay, don't raise your hand if you're a sociology major. Don't raise your hand if you're a psych major. Don't raise your hand if you're anything related to like helping people deal with relationships. After all the studying, we still don't have an answer to solve the issues that we see in the family today. What's up with that? Why is it that there are so many issues still in the family today, even after 2,000 years? You think that humans could learn something about how to have good family relationships. But it just shows that there's something deeply wrong, deeply broken in our relationships, in our families. And actually, especially for families, even in our church, this is why our family ministry is so important. 
This is why our city ministry is so important. If the family's covenant, can I get a shout out? All right, a couple of them here. Our, our, Our family ministry is so important. Why? Because show me a family that lives out Christ, that lives out all the values that Christ aspires to, that husbands are loving their wives, wives are submitting to their husbands, children are obeying their parents. They're not provoking. They have a loving relationship. And show that relationship, show that family to the world. And teach them how to have those kind of family relationships. You will have a lot of people signing up, waiting in line to say, hey, how can my family change? That is one of the greatest witnesses to the world that doesn't know Christ. Is if we can have relationships, families, that are showing the world a different way to live. Because we realize family relationships are so broken today. And the fact that something is broken, it shows that there's a problem. Well, what is that problem? Well, Paul is talking and he's conjecturing or he's stating that our relationship problem, our family problem, is a selfishness, it's a pride problem. The problems that we have in our families, it's not because of your parents. Well, partially it is because of your parents. It's not just because you're born into the wrong family. It's because we're all selfish and we're proud people. In verse 25, I'm going to read it again. It says, For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. I'm going to read it for us in the amplified version. He says, For he who does wrong will be punished for his wrongdoing, and with God there is no partiality, no special treatment based on a person's position in life. That phrase at the end, no partiality, and the amplified kind of gives us an interpretive version of that. It says, God doesn't treat anyone differently based on their role. Doesn't matter if you're better or you're more holy or whatever, there is no partiality. So Paul, in the context of this passage, he's saying, I don't care if you're a father. I don't care if you're a wife. I don't care if you're a husband. I don't care if you're a child. I don't care if you're a bondservant or in, in... Modern day term, I don't care if you're a slave. God does not treat you differently. He is, there's no partiality. There's no special treatment based on a person's position in life. So what is he saying? He's saying the issues that come out of a family is because you think that there's special treatment based on your position in life. Somehow because you are a father, you think that you have the right to dominate your children. Somehow because you think that you're a husband, that you have every right to dominate your wife. Somehow because you feel like wronged by your husband, that you as a wife, you feel like you have every right to do and be selfish with your family, with your husband. He's saying God doesn't treat us that way, but in our selfishness and in our pride, that's how we treat and that's how we relate to other people. And, and most of us are, you know, like, oh, that makes sense. But I would guess most of us are like, oh, that's not me. That's not what I'm going through. This is the truth. As some of us really live selfishly, and we don't even realize it. We don't even realize there's a problem with it in our relationships. Don't raise your hand. How many of us, we secretly think that we're better than that other person, whether it's that friendship you have or that family member that you have. Especially some of you who have siblings, right? 
If you're the older sibling, I'm better than that younger sibling. I'm older, I'm stronger, I'm faster. But it doesn't just have to be older. You could be the younger sibling. You could be the child. And you can think of your parents like, oh, you know, you know, my parents really sucked at raising me. They did everything wrong. Some of us, we have this attitude, I will never, ever do what my parents did. Because you know how it impacted you. But what you don't know is that you are going to be the exact same as your parents in the future. What you don't know is the very things that your parents did to you, you're going to do and carry on to your parents, your, your, your children in the future. And, and that's that deep-seated pride, that deep-seated like smugness, like, oh, I'm better than that person. Somehow I'm, I'm, I'm more equipped or I'm more loving or I'm more holy than that person. It causes us to treat that other relationship with contempt. You don't really love your parents. Because you think you're better than them. You don't really care for your siblings. You don't really care for your friends. You just put up with them because you think that you're the better half of the relationship. Some of us don't, we don't ever realize that. Some of us, we think we're the really noble friend, right? We're always the one calling them, loving on them, serving on them, checking on, on how they're doing. And we feel like, wow, I must be, lights on, life off, right? I must be because I'm doing all these things. Like, I'm the loving friend. And th- they have the issues. But this is the selfish part. Is that as soon as we don't get something that we want in return for what we did, what happens? We get bitter. We get angry. We get frustrated. We don't want to talk to that person anymore. Is even in our nobility, even in the ways that we try to care for someone else, what? We're selfish. It's all about us. It's all about what we can get out of that relationship. It has nothing to do with that person. In fact, the very motive for why you're, ser- why you're serving that person is so that you can get something in return. And it's evidenced by the fact that when you don't get what you want, that's when you get hurt. That shows it was never about that first person to begin with. It was all about you. Some of us were on the opposite side. We have that deep insecure pride where we feel like, oh, we're worse than everyone else. Like, oh, that person is a really good friend and like, I, I, I'm really undeserving. Wow, like I'm, I'm so humble because I'm so undeserving of this friendship. But actually, that is also a form of insecure pride. Because you're putting your identity in what they think of you. And really it's that selfishness. Because if you really love that person, that you wouldn't think about what they think of you. You wouldn't care so much about what their view or their opinions of you would be. You wouldn't put your value and your worth so much that you're always clinging on that if you lose that friendship that somehow your world is over. Because when you think that way, you can't genuinely love that person. And the last example I wanted to share, I think it's relevant for many of us, is many for us, all of us are children here, yes? Many of us as kids, as children, when we obey our parents, oftentimes we obey our parents because we think that's the right thing to do. Because we think that somehow if we meet our parents' expectations, 
it's going to allow our relationship with our families to be better. That we're so afraid of not doing, or we're so afraid of not meeting their expectations or disappointing them, that that causes us to do everything that we do. But this is actually one of the most selfish desires of all. Because what are we actually longing for? What are we actually afraid of? We're actually afraid of our parents. We're actually afraid of what they're going to think of us. We're actually doing everything out of what reaction we want to get out of them so that we can feel better, so that we don't feel bad, so that we don't feel like we're a failure. Everything is about us. And actually, for students, this is the, this is the crazy thing, is the more that you try to love and please your parents, the more that you find you cannot. The more that you feel like you have to get a certain GPA, the more that you find yourself anxious and worried, and the more you procrastinate. Because it matters so much to you that you cannot genuinely love your family. Because you're so focused on worrying about what they're going to think of you if you don't meet their expectations. Your whole motive is selfish in everything that you do. Do we see how, how messed up this is? How broken it is? Even in the very good intentions that we have. That by our selfishness, by our pride, by the way that we see and the different roles that we have in our family relationships or with our friend relationships, that we somehow think, think that God is going to treat us differently. That this causes us to react in these kind of ways, in those relationships. And it really causes that brokenness in our families. I think for myself, um, for those of you who don't know, I have a younger brother. He's about four years younger. And I think growing up, I just realized, like, I'm a typical older brother. (laughs) Typical older brother that I would, like, always tease and, like, do bad things to my brother. Like, we would be playing video games, and this is what the older brother does, right? He likes playing video games by himself. He really only wants to play by himself. He doesn't want the younger brother to play, but he gets really thirsty. And so what he does, he says, oh, I'll let you play if you go get water for me. <laughs> or I'll play with you, you get water for me. So the younger brother, he goes get water, he brings them back, and then I, after I finish drinking the water, I'm done. <laughs> I'm not going to play with you anymore. Right? And it's just like devastating. I mean, just like little things like that. I mean, overall, I would say I had a pretty good relationship with my brother. We would play together or not. And, but I realized, I started, slowly started to realize a lot of it was out of selfishness, not because I really liked him. Like, I, 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 um, we would sleep in the same room growing up, and over time, you know, you get to a certain age where you're like, you know, I want to sleep in my own room because I'm old enough. But I, I always wanted to sleep in the same room with my brother. Why? Because I didn't want to be lonely. <laughs> it wasn't because I liked him, right? I think he felt like really liked and loved, but it was because I, I didn't want to feel lonely. So we ended up sleeping in a bunk bed together until I was in like middle school or something like that. I just realized like over time, and I, it really came out and it was really revealed in my relationship with him. Uh, starting when I went to high school. And in the U.S., in high school, around 15, 16-year-olds, that's when uh, you get your driver's license. And as soon as I get my driver's license, this is, the pro- this is what happened is once you get a car, you can go hang out with your friends wherever. Before, I didn't have a car, so I was stuck at home with my brother, right? But after I got a car, I realized that I could go out and hang out with my friends. And I think after that point, I didn't really spend time with him, um, and after I went to college, I didn't really keep in touch with him. And our relationships just kind of deteriorated after that. 
And even now, I would say our relationship isn't that great. And now I'm trying to do everything, like to somehow mend the relationship, to grow the relationship, to develop the relationship back to like where it used to be. But I realize no matter how much I do, it doesn't really make a difference because there are so many things that in the way I treated him growing up, I really didn't love him or show that I cared for him. Like even I got him a, for his graduation present, I think about a couple years ago, I got him a MacBook Pro. And he was like, whoa, so cool. And then nothing happened after that, right? He was just like, appreciate it, and then it went back to normal. And also, I was like, I'm just trying to do everything possible to mend this relationship. But I realized there's something about relationships because I treat it in such a selfish way that just doing more things, because I realized even in just doing more things for him is a selfish motive of mine to somehow just repair the relationship. I'm realizing it's not going to fix the relationship. My relationship is too broken. When you have two selfish people together, there's too much brokenness just for me to somehow fix it on my own. There has to be something greater. There has to be something more powerful, more, more deep in my heart and other people's hearts to really see that real lasting change. And so Paul, this is what he talks about. And, he, and this is the second part of what he talks about of how we can actually redefine the purpose of relationships and see those relationships restored. So Paul not only talks about the problem, but he also gives the new purpose, the new purpose of relationships. I want to read for us, there's a theme that goes through these verses, and the same verses that we just read, but a theme through these verses that Paul's emphasizing that gives us what this new purpose is. In verse 18, 20, 22, and 23, it'll be up there. It says in verse 18, He's talking about wives submitting to husbands as is fitting in the Lord. In verse 20, he's talking to children. He says, for it, this pleases the Lord. In verse 22, he's talking to bondservants. He tells them to obey, fearing the Lord. And in verse 23, he says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord. Pretty much he's saying everything is motivated by the Lord, Jesus Every single part of your relationship is no longer selfish. It's no longer out of pride. It's to please God over everything else. In verse 23 to 24, I'll read it in the New Living Translation. It says, work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and that the master you are serving is Christ." He's saying, work for the Lord rather than people. Sometimes it's like counterintuitive. Sometimes we feel like the thing that we need to do in order to have good relationships is to focus more on the relationship. But Paul says the opposite. He says, stop focusing on the relationship. Stop thinking about the people. Stop thinking about yourself. Focus on Christ. Focus on Jesus Christ. I mean, isn't that true? Oftentimes, the more we focus on something, the more anxious that we get about it. The more difficult it is for, for us to actually have something good. Students, don't raise your hand. How many of you, the more you focus on your exam, the more anxious you get, the more worried you get. And then the more worried you get, what happens when you sit down and you see the exam, you're like, OMG, and your mind totally blinks. Some of us, we love sports, 
And I'm not going to mention any names, but when you go up for that basketball shot, sometimes the more you focus on that shot, the more you're worried, oh, am I going to make it? Am I going to not? You're not going to make it, right? You're not going to make it. There's so many different areas in our lives. We realize the more we idolize and we focus on one particular thing, the more it becomes attached to our identity, our worth, oftentimes the worse it comes out. And so Paul is offering us an alternative. Stop focusing on yourself. Stop focusing on the people. Stop focusing on the relationship. Focus on Christ. Kelly Needham, in this article, True Friends Are Hard to Find, um, she writes, The essence of Christian friendship is companionship forged in the fire of two convictions. Number one, Jesus alone can satisfy the soul. Number two, his kingdom alone is worth living for. Christian friendship is treasure is a treasure because it helps us to cling to our greatest treasure. Jesus alone can satisfy us. That is why focusing on him is the only way that we can develop good relationships. If you somehow think that that relationship is going to satisfy you, you're going to be disappointed. If you somehow think that the best thing to live for is when you have this great group of friends and that you're all chummy and you're like sitting there when you're 80 on the beach and you're reminiscing about like all the great memories I have. You're living for the wrong thing. It's living for Christ. Treasuring Christ above all things. She continues on, Jesus is our bread of life, our living water, our pearl of great price, our light, our resurrection, our very life. The greatest danger to our souls is that we might abandon abiding in him, following him, finding our joy in him. Therefore, the best gift a friend can give is a commitment to fight for our joy in and communion with Christ. End quote. That is the best gift that you can give to a friend and a friend can give to you. It's not each other. It's Christ. Because Christ is our everything. Friendship is not our everything. Family relationships, as precious as they may be, they're not your everything. Christ is your everything. And if somehow we find that we're idolizing our relationship with our family, our friends, over Christ... And that's where we're going to run into the brokenness that we see Paul addresses. The partiality that Paul is trying to give or to expose in our lives, in our hearts. How about us? Do we see problems in our relationships with people? Are there current issues that we're going through or struggling with right now? And where does it come from? How have we been proud or selfish In our relationships, you cannot, you're not responsible for that other person, but you're responsible for your own attitude, for your own motivation. And have we been making Christ the center of every relationship that we have? I think we need to do some reevaluation of our relationships to see if Christ is the new purpose, if He has been redefining the purpose of our relationships, and we've been responding to that. So that's why Christ redefines the purpose of a relationship. Let's move on to the second point, which is not only that Christ redefines the purpose of our relationships, but Christ redirects the focus of relationships. Christ redirects the focus of relationships. When I was like thinking about this passage, 
Uh, if, you, if you just read the passage, some of the, these parts just feel, feel really disjointed. And I didn't really know like, how to come up with this point. And I, like, initially, I was just thinking, like, you know what? I should just call this point, it's not about you. Because <laughs> the focus is not about you. I was like, okay, that, you know, but let me try to tie it in a little bit better and say, redirect the focus of relationships. But I was thinking, why, why is it that it's so hard to redirect our focus? What is it that causes us to have such a narrow view of relationships. And, and oftentimes I realize it's because we've never seen anything out, else outside of those kind of relationships. Some of us were such relational people, and actually for most of our lives, it's gotten us pretty far. We have a decent group of friends. We feel like we have decent relationships. Like, oh, we're, we're doing pretty well. And so we've never seen anything outside of that. And it reminded me of this, um, I guess, I think it's a Chinese idiom. Is it a photo up there? The frog in the well, isn't it? I'm really bad at Chinese, but it says Jing Di Zhuwa. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you. It's the it's the frog in the well, and if you don't know this story, it's the frog who lives in the bottom of the well, and he loves it. He he feels like he's having the time of his life, and he sees the top and kind of wonders what's up there, but doesn't really know until I think there's a couple of different versions of the story and. In one version of the story, there's like a turtle who comes and tells the frog, like, hey, there's something greater out there. There's the ocean. You're missing out on the ocean. And the frog is like, oh, I don't care because I'm enjoying my life here. And the other version of the story, the frog, like, gets out of the well and realizes, whoa, there's something so much greater out there. And for some of us, like, we are the frogs in the well when it comes to relationships that so, for so long, for our whole lives, like, everything we've been focused on is having great relationships and friendships, that that is everything that life is about. We've never think to, out, thought outside of what would a relationship be like if it was not just about my relationships, having good quality relationships for me. But Paul is saying that's not what relationships are just only about. You have to broaden your perspective, your horizon. It's not just about you and that other person. It's not just about you and your, your family. There's so many other people, other relationships that Christ wants us to pay attention to. And let's see what Paul is referring to. Let's read Colossians 4, verses 2 to 6. It says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray, for, pray also for us that God may also, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Paul talks about two main things here as he redirects the focus of our relationships, not just inwardly, but now outwardly. The first thing he talks about is to pray steadfastly. So continue steadfastly in prayer. And, and our question is how or for what? The first thing he mentions, is he says to be watchful. Pray steadfastly or continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And, and what does this remind us of? What are we being watchful of? Why do we need to be watchful? In, in other passages in the Bible, it references to that there's a spiritual battle going on. In 1 Peter 5, 8, in the ESV, it says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone 
to devour. Some of us, we don't even realize that there's a spiritual battle going on outside around us. And some of us, we're so unaware. It's kind of like, you know, like, you know the, the kid, the children, when, when, when they're playing hide-and-go-seek? They're like, well, if I can't see, if, you can't, if I can't see, you can't see me, right? And you're just standing there like, oh, I can't see you. You know, you just play along with them, but you're like, wow, you're such a dumb kid, right? <laughs> Secretly, I know all of you are thinking that in your head when you play with them. But that's what we do. We, we stick our heads in the sand and we think like, oh, everything's fine. If I can't see it, if I'm not experiencing it, then nothing is happening. But actually, every single day, every single moment, there's a spiritual battle going on for people around you. That Satan is constantly prowling around like a roaring lion, trying to bring you down, trying to bring your friends down, trying to bring your family down in different ways. But we're just not aware of it. We just don't even know. We don't even realize what's going on. Paul is saying, get outside of your own world. Think outside of yourself. There's something else bigger happening. He not only says be watchful, watchful, but he says that we ought to pray steadfastly so we can support evangelism. Paul is asking for prayer so that he could preach the word, preach the mystery of Christ, even while he's in prison. I don't know about you, but how many of us, when we think of relationships, the first thing we think of is like, oh, I hope that that person grows deeper in that relationship with God. First time you think about your family, do you think more about your, your conflict? Or do you hope that one day your family will come to know Christ? That is your main prayer. So many people, they complain. They struggle with their family relationship. But you've never prayed diligently for your family to come to know Christ. Or maybe for some of us, our families are already at least professing believers. But you've never prayed that their relationship with Christ would deepen. Because it's all about you. It's all about what your family can offer to you. It's all about what your friends can offer to you. But what if the best thing that your family, your friends need is Christ? When's the last time we had this outward mentality of, man, I want that person to come to know Christ? And it's crazy. Paul's in prison right now, and he's asking for prayer. He's not asking for prayer like, please pray for me that prison's going to go better. Please pray for me that I'm going to be put under like a you know, house arrest so I can live in comfort. So many of us, we pray. Whenever we run into relational difficulty, that's our first prayer. Lord, please, you know, let me reconcile with this person. Help me to like, have everything smoothed out. I can't stand being in conflict with this person. Your prayer is all about you. How often do we pray, God, Please, bring Christ into that person's life more. Lord, give me forgiveness so that they can see Christ in my life. Give them forgiveness so I can see Christ in their life. When was the last time Christ was the center so that we wanted every single person in that relationship to know Christ better? And not just for relationships inside the church, but for many of us, we have dear friends, loved ones who don't know Christ? Do we pray for them? Do we ask God, would you save them? Would you do that work in them that I cannot do? The second thing that Paul encourages the Colossians to do is to walk in wisdom. To walk in wisdom, 
He says, toward whom? Toward outsiders. Who are the outsiders that Paul's referring to? He's saying, to those who are not in the church, to those who don't know Christ, to those who have no hope. Pre-Christians, those who don't have a believe, who are not believers yet. And what does he say? How are we to walk in wisdom? In the New Living Translation, that verse says, make the most of every opportunity. In the Amplified, it says, treating it as something precious. See, every single day, the reason why he uses the word walk, in Hong Kong, we walk everywhere, right? Unless you have a car. You're walking everywhere, right? Walking in the MTR, you're walking up the mountain. For some of you who go to the school on the mountain, <laughs> some of you go to the school on the beach, right? You walk to the beach. Some of you walk all over the place. It's just how you live. It's an everyday thing. Walking in wisdom. Make the most of every opportunity. Saying not just when you feel prepared. I think some of us, when we think about sharing our faith, we think, okay, it's Easter. I got to share my faith. It is requirement. In the Bible, in Hezekiah chapter 5, verse 20, it says, thou shalt evangelize during Easter. Some of you who don't get that joke, Hezekiah is not a book in the Bible. I'm sorry if that caught you off guard, okay? There's nothing in the Bible that says thou shalt evangelize only during Easter. We should be sharing our faith all the time. Every single moment of our lives, that should be something on our minds. Walk in wisdom, making the most of every opportunity, treating every moment as precious, every relationship that you have. Do you prepare that time as a time that you can actually share your faith and make Christ the center of that relationship. He says, let your speech always be gracious. He doesn't say sometimes be gracious. Always be gracious. Season with salt. That's a reference to salt and light. If we're to be seasoned with salt, that means everything that we do, it's seasoned with the flavor of Christ. Is the way that we speak, the way that we relate to people, Revealing Christ in every aspect of our lives. This is the question. When is it okay that I don't share my faith with other people? Never. There's not a single moment that Paul talks about here. He says, oh, you don't have to share your faith in this moment. And some of us, we, we interpret that like, oh, do I have to be like a Jesus freak? Like, hi, how are you doing? I'm doing great because Jesus is Lord. How about you? <laughs> you know? Like, some of us, we think evangelism is like that. You know, or like, oh, how are you doing? Or like, you know, when you introduce yourself, sometimes we go through this training called gospel fluency, and we're trained, like, oh, hi, what's your name? Oh, I'm Bo. What's yours? Oh, I'm, you know, so-and-so. Oh, what do you do? Or, or, like, who are you? You know, what do you do? Oh, I am a son of the, son, son of the God most high. You know, that's my, my, my occupation. I'm a son. You know, how about you? Are you a son or are you not a son? <laughs> right? It's like, it's like weird, you know? Like some, sometimes we, we think that sharing our faith is like this awkward conversation that we just have to butt in and everything and we just somehow spew Jesus all over the place. But as we come to Easter in about two weeks, my hope is that our language and our speech is seasoned with salt, is gracious in every way, that means in everything that we go through, that in the struggles that we have, in the difficulties that we encounter, 
as we're sharing, we're sharing honestly with the people that don't know about him. We're sharing that Christ is such an important relationship for us. And if he is so important for us, then why would we not share about him? I think some of us, like, this is what happens. Like, when we're, like some of us, were in group projects, and we're, like, we're complaining. And we're, like, so stressed out, and we're so overwhelmed. And then your group project, it just becomes a complaint fest. Oh, my God, that professor sucks. It's so bad. I can't believe he didn't tell us about the exam last minute. And you're like, yeah, I know. He's such a horrible person, you know. I don't have to love people at all because Christ loved me, you know. <laughs> In that moment, what can you do? Sure, yeah, it's, you can just be honest. Yeah, it's been really hard for me to love people. Or you're gossiping about that other group mate, and you're tearing them down, and you're tearing them down. But that's a perfect opportunity to introduce Christ because what, what did you just study in, in, in your Bible study last, last week? You, we studied about how Christ made us alive. Now we can live with holiness because of God's goodness. So now if we're living in holiness, we want to love other people. And so you're like, you know what, guys? Like I, I'm struggling with this too, and I know that he's, like, he's a horrible group member, and I totally agree. But like, I'm realizing we ought to, you know, it would be great if we can just love him and show him some grace. You know, because I'm realizing, like, I've been so loved and so cared for because, like, man, my faith has been really challenging me to do that. And I know it's awkward, and you might be like, wow, you're such a party pooper. And your groommates might think, like, wow, you're such a weird Jesus freak. But how many of you know that sometimes, if you don't share that, they'll never know that there's a hope that you have that is greater? And that when they struggle, when they go through something else, that they know exactly who to talk to. That when that person becomes the person that everyone gossips about, they know you're the one friend that will stand up for them. They know you're the one friend that is trying to live for Christ, and they see something different in you. That's when they ask you, like, why is it that you do what you do? How many of us, we live that way? And not just for students. Oh, man, gossip at work, politics at work. Working adults, you know how much it goes around. And what if we were to live differently? That instead of fueling the politics, instead of fueling the gossip about your boss or about that colleague, what if you spoke up and said something? What if you're struggling and you ask for help and you're going through stress and, you're, and, and for whatever reason during lunch you just had this opportunity just to share more honestly? And as when your coworkers, they're really going through some difficult times and they're sharing about how overwhelmed they are, you're just able to ask, what helps you cope with that stress? And they're just like, yeah, they share some things. And you're able to share, you know what, I've been really stressed too. The only thing that really helps me is my relationship with Jesus. And sure, maybe they just put you down. Maybe they'll say bad things about you. But at least you're able to make that relationship more about Christ more than anyone else, more than that person, more than trying to be afraid of what that person is going to think of you. We were reading an article in our leaders' meeting the other day, and, and there's this quote or this statistic that really stuck out to me. I'll, I'll read it for us. It says, In a 2015 survey, nearly half of Wheaton students, Wheaton is a university in the U.S., a Christian university, they said that the biggest obstacle to sharing their faith was fear of what other people would think of them. Their comments include things like, I feel like I'd be imposing my view on somebody. I'm worried about losing a friendship. Or, they'll think I'm being judgmental. 
The next biggest obstacle was feeling inadequate in evangelistic social interactions, followed by feeling unprepared. If I were to sum up what he's saying, is the number one reason why we're not able to share our faith is because we care more about what people think of us rather than what God thinks of us. We're driven by fear. And it shows us our fear is more of people and men in the world or women in the world than of God. And I'm not saying that you're never going to be afraid or you have to get to a point where you're not afraid for you to be able to share your faith. You're always going to be afraid. I'm afraid at work. I'm, I'm, re- I'm terrified because most of my colleagues are local and, and it's hard for me to build relationships with them. And I'm constantly wondering, like, oh, what are they saying in Cantonese behind my back that I can't understand? But unless you serve God more than anyone else, unless you believe that he is your living hope, unless you believe that he is the only thing in this world that will satisfy you, that his kingdom is the only thing worth living for, then we're not going to be able to overcome that fear of being able to share our faith, the most important relationship in our lives, with someone else that we really care about. And this is the kicker, is that you're not going to be able to genuinely care about those people your classmates, your friendships, your relationships, your family member, until you love Christ above all things more than anyone else. Because you're going to be so focused on what they think of you and what their attitude of you is rather than God. 1 Peter 3, verse 15 in the New Living Translation, it says, Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. Let's make Christ Lord of our lives, our everything. And that anytime someone asks us, we have the opportunity to share about what we believe. Let's be ready to explain it to someone else. Because Christ is redirecting the focus of our relationship. It's no longer about ourselves. Let's not be frogs in the well where relationships are all about us, about the quality, about the friends that we have, but it's about Christ. I'll close out with this quote from John MacArthur. Talks about real good friendships. He says, I am convinced, by the way, that friendships provide the most fertile soil for evangelism. When the reality of Christ is introduced into a relationship of love and trust that has already been established, the effect is powerful. And it seems that invariably, when someone becomes a true follower of Christ, that that person's first impulse is to want to find a friend and introduce that friend to Christ. And it's not just for us to share with others, but this is true for us. Can we remember that time when we first trusted in Jesus Christ for ourselves? What was that like? What was being forgiven, cleansed, totally redeemed, loved, cared for, welcomed, pursued after, chased after, All of your sins that were so nasty, your focus was so much on yourself. And Christ wiped all of that away. And he gave us life. That's what the whole book of Colossians is about. About how Christ is the ultimate in our lives. And he has done everything. He died for us. He rose again for us so that we can have new life. So we don't have to worry about the worries of the world. 
And now that we live in this new reality, that when we see Christ, when we remember who we are in Christ, when we follow Christ, then that first impulse for us is that we want to introduce someone else to Christ, that friend that we have to Christ. Because Christ, what? He loved us first. Because he first made our relationship not about him, not about his desires, his wants. But he went to the cross for us so that he can have a restored relationship with us. That is the good news. That is the gospel. And Jesus doesn't just expect us to do this on our own, but he demonstrated it for us first. That he gave us his life first so that we could have a restored relationship with the Father. And because now we have this restored relationship with the Father, we can make all of our relationships about Christ ourselves. So that's why the one thing is that our relationships will be healthy when we seek Christ wholeheartedly. Our relationships will be healthy when we seek Christ wholeheartedly. I want to give us some next steps, some practical suggestions for us to be able to live this out this week. Number one is just reevaluate the purpose of your relationships. We can't avoid it. Unless you're a hermit on an island by yourself, you might make a volleyball your friend, right? But all of us, we relate in different ways to people. And we all value relationships in different ways. But all of us, we can reevaluate, spend some time reflecting. Think about who are your close relationships? What is your relationship with your family like? What are your relationship with your best friends like? With your classmates, what is it like? And what kind of worth or value do you put on those relationships? Do some reevaluation. Because you might realize that your purpose is really selfish or self-centered or it's out of your pride. It's not because of Christ. And we have to realize that first before we can see anything change. The second one is now recommit to praying for others. Recommit to praying for others. Even in prayer, this is the dangerous thing. Even when we pray for people, it could be self-centered. And so my challenge is for us to begin praying for other people. Stop praying for yourself and for you to have great relationships. Start praying for other people. Start praying that Christ would bless that other person. Start start praying that Christ would have his favor upon that person. Start praying that Christ would love that person, help them to grow. Stop making it about ourselves. Commit to praying for that, especially if there's someone that you cannot forgive. Especially if there's someone that you're in a conflict with right now. One of the most difficult things is to actually pray for them. And so if you find yourself that you cannot pray for that person, then there's some heart work that we need to do ourselves. We need to repent and confess ourselves and then be able to pray for that person. Lastly, realize every opportunity to share about Jesus and invite them to Easter. Yes, Easter is not the only time we should be doing evangelism, sharing our faith, sharing that Christ is such good news that there's no one else that's better. But let's not make Easter the only time that we share about Christ. Let's not make this rave card the only time like, oh, it's only when I get this rave card once a year. That's when I have to do evangelism. Please use this. It's really nice. And there's a little space for you to write a little note for that person that you want to invite. And we're praying. Let's, let's pray that God would bring so many people to our Easter celebration. They can hear the gospel and God's word and really come and experience Christ for the first time. But let's make it in every aspect of our lives. When you're in your group projects, when you're working, when you're hanging out with friends at the bar, when you are on the MTR with someone, 
every single moment, let's realize that as an opportunity to share your faith. Let's do it together these next two weeks. Easter's coming up in just two weeks. And let's really ask that God would do an incredible thing and see many people come to know Christ for the first time in in a couple weeks. Amen? Amen. We want to see that. Let's stand together and we'll close out with some worship. I was thinking about um, just the whole time. We've been studying Colossians for the last seven weeks or so, and and it's been really just rejuvenating, personally, just to refocus on Christ, to put all of our attention on Christ. And I mean, if you notice, every single week, it's about who? It's about Jesus Christ. You cannot go wrong if, you, if the only thing you take away from this whole series is Jesus. It's about Jesus. Make it about Jesus. And Paul, we have one more sermon next week to conclude, but Paul is now giving us, leaving us with some practical exhortations and everything especially relationships, make it about Christ. And I mentioned earlier that if we could see incredible families, Christ-centered families, that will be a huge witness to the world that Jesus is real. Similarly, if we can see Christ-centered relationships in our church, we can see people forgiving one another. We can see reconciliation in our church. That itself would be an incredible witness to the world that Christ is real. Jesus says himself in the book of John, he says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. He doesn't say love one another with a human love. He says, just as I have loved you, so you are also to love one another. It's only with Christ's love that we can see relationships, healthy relationships, happen in our church. So even as we start, I just want us to just pray. Let's confess. Let's confess if there's been selfishness in our hearts, if there have been pride, there have been these sinful motives. Even though we, quote-unquote, have good intentions, the selfishness that comes deep down if that's how we've been approaching relationships, let's repent, let's confess that before God. And let's begin to pray, God, would you give us good, healthy relationships? Not for my sake, God, for your sake, for your glory. Let's turn our attention on Christ more than anything else. Can we do that? Can we just begin to confess and to pray, saying, God, just as I reevaluate my relationships, I realize I've been sinful. It's made all about me. It's been my pride, it's been my insecurity. Lord, help me to not, not do that anymore, not be motivated by that anymore, but help me to turn to you and make it all about you. Let's just pray. Let's spend a couple of minutes just doing that together.